0: Welcome to the Biblical Channel. Glad you're here. The normal way that God speaks to us is through the Bible. So we're kind of happy to be back into, you know, a biblical text. We're going to take the book of Hebrews and go from front to back, you know, cover everything. So the normal way that God speaks to us is through the Bible and Christians ought to read the Bible and be taught from it regularly. Um, I love that line. I grabbed it from somebody a long time ago. But anyhow, here's the text that we are going to focus on. Uh, It is the beginning of Hebrews, chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. It goes like this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he is a parent-pointed heir of all things, through whom, also, he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power after making purification for sins he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high well praise be to god for those words and let's just pray the way that jesus taught us how to pray keep it simple if you know what i mean our father in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. I don't know about you, Lord, but this never gets old. This prayer never gets old. This prayer never gets old. That's what I love about the prayer. It never gets old. And it's better than anything I ever pray. You know, if I'm going to go make up a prayer, this is better. Anyhow, all right. Well, we have, um, what we have in store for us is um, the whole idea of grabbing coffee. And grabbing coffee with God is how we're going to imagine, you know, this time that we spend in Hebrews. So let's just talk about that for a second and, and imagine what it means to grab a cup of coffee. If you're going to grab a cup of coffee, there's some usual things that happen. Number one, grabbing coffee is a little bit more than coffee. It's, it's usually about conversations. You know, it's about words. It's about talky-talky. It's, a, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And that conversation is usually pretty personal, and, and it's usually quite comfortable. Um, and that conversation is also, you know, oftentimes, if you have family, talking about your family. We all have family, but if you have kids in particular, you talk about your kids. And it's also talking about you. We would expect all of that in a normal coffee shop or, you know, in, in a coffee conversation, grabbing a cup of coffee with somebody. You know, obviously, you need coffee, yes. Um, and, but the key in a, a grabbing a cup of coffee with somebody is it's just relaxing. And it's being a good listener. And so the question is, can we use our powerful imagined reality to imagine having coffee with God? I think we should. I think we should so much, though, so that let's indeed, why don't you just hit the pause button, go grab your cup of coffee or your cup of tea, whatever whatever is your cup of tea. Uh, this old battle ax, this contigo is mine I'm going to have a sip right in front of you just to create the ambiance of grabbing a coffee. So anyhow, if we were going to have a coffee with God, is it possible? Well, yeah, Um, I think it is. Um, I think all of the necessary ingredients that we just talked about are right there and available for us. First of all, the remarkable position of the Bible is that God himself is a speaker, you know, He gives words, and in giving his words, uh, well, he's a talker, and he's also a listener. And that's what we're always hoping when it comes to God, that he's a listener. Maybe we ought to focus more on what he has to say, though. So surprisingly, surprisingly, the Bible is mostly personal and comfortable. I know, I know. The Bible has this bad rap of, of being... You know kind of on the nasty side you know God is so judgmental and he's so angry and you know it's so hard to to listen to but i tell you what I've read through the Bible several times and uh, I find it to be mostly uh, well personal and comfortable but I know I know I keep hearing from other people that God is a tyrant whom we should hate that he created men in his own image only to make them vile and to give us sinful hearts uh, just so he can have the right to punish us. Uh, come on. Um, I don't know. I, I think that comes from people who don't read the Bible. I don't know where it comes from, but it also reminds me of a little book I'm going to plug, Coffee with Jesus. This thing is priceless. You ought to have it on your shelf. Support these guys. You know, Christians, uh, I've always said, should have the best sense of humor on the planet, and I really mean that. And these guys have a great sense of humor, and so they've put together some coffee strips. Ah, (laughs) not coffee strips, uh, uh, you know, cartoon strips, uh, imagining coffee with Jesus, right? Who is God? But we'll get to that in a minute. But here's one I wanted to share with you. Concerning what I just got done saying, that surprisingly the Bible is is mostly personal and comfortable, uh, not angry and hateful. Um, but it goes like this. Here's here's a great imagine this conversation, and and here's a young lady who is having coffee with Jesus. She says, My friends who don't know you, Jesus, they think God is mean and vindictive. Jesus says. <laughs> Well, it is often the case that people will form opinions of others that they don't know, Lisa. Lisa then says, But how strange, backward even, to think that you, the very embodiment of love, could be anything else. Jesus says, I'm thinking the ones who go around saying they know me, might have something to do with that, Lisa. If you didn't pick up on it, I'll tell you the meaning. But pick up this book, by the way. But I think that in that conversation, Jesus is right, that perhaps people get the impression that God is mean and vindictive, not from those who don't know God, but those who do. Mm. It probably goes back and forth on both sides of the aisle. But I do find that Christians are susceptible to picking up on all of the negative stuff. It reminds me of of raising kids, you know. I mean, when you raise kids, um, you're always, you know, shocked that your kids will pick up on your bad habits way quicker than they pick up on all the good things that you do. Anywho, let's get back to what we are talking about conversation coffee with God yes it's possible because God's a speaker first and foremost and surprisingly the Bible is mostly personal and comfortable in Hebrews though we would imagine just like a normal coffee shop conversation is probably going to turn to our kids that God himself is going to talk about his son a lot in fact the whole um, you know first more than first half of Hebrews is well it's about the son so God the son. And, you know, eventually Hebrews will get to talking about you, which is good. You know, that's also part of a conversation and, and especially a coffee conversation, getting around to talking about you. Um, of course, uh, a conversation is, is uh, oftentimes advice oriented. So we should expect that. Uh, but it should be a little bit more when we come to Hebrews. And if we're going to listen to God in a coffee shop conversation, um, I do think we ought to imagine him being particularly calm because God is always calm, as far as I can tell, in the Bible. But we should consider his words a little bit more than advice that we would get from our friends. But the good thing is is that God knows you'll probably try it your own way first. Uh, my son has a favorite saying, and that is that, uh, go ahead, do what you want, you're going to anyhow. Do what you want, you're going to anyhow. Um, God understands that about us, and the good news is, is that as a father, he does forgive. But he is convinced that you'll probably come around to his way of thinking eventually unless unless your heart is hard. That's the only problem that could get in your way. Anyhow, coffee? Of course. So what will God have for coffee? Hebrew. God always has Hebrew. Sorry for the bad joke, but I had to say it. We have to say it. It's kind of funny. Um, but the key to this as we go through, is, is give God some time to talk. Be a good listener in this coffee conversation with God. Be a good listener. God knows he's always listening to you. So try to be a good listener as God speaks in this. The author to Hebrews is unknown, but no bow to doubt it that it comes from that faithful community that jesus himself had assembled you know the apostolic community it comes from them even though we don't know the author personally whoever it is but it does come from them it comes from jesus hand-picked people to make sure that we get the message so that we can have conversations with god so that we get it correct so let's say the message is endorsed 100 percent by god yeah paid for by god So get your favorite cuppa and relax and enjoy God's coffee. He brews. Okay, so that brings us to the first and opening line. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Okay, all right, God, what are you saying in this? Well. I don't think it's hard to hard to work out, especially if you just read it and hear it again. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. Great summary. First of all, this is a great summary that connects the two thousand year old story that came before Jesus to Jesus. Yeah, of course, we're talking about Jesus, His Son. Um, And it's also important to not miss the fact that this is a statement that openly, you know, reveals that God is a speaker, that he is the giver of words. Words are the substance of conversations. Words are the substance of, uh, well, the whole meaning of our lives. What set of words are you working with would be a great way to summarize your life or to get a grip on your life. But he controls the words so in the Bible God controls the words of his story in his own words through you know Abe Abraham Moses you know David the prophets okay all of those are considered prophets but the fathers and the prophets are God's mechanism for controlling the story of his words okay well that's fair enough so what we do is we connect that long ago many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets so basically that covers from genesis to malachi or genesis to second chronicles depending on how the old part of uh, the bible is is uh, ordered but here's where the catch is the catch is is that there is a climactic ending to the giving of God's words. First of all, he controlled the giving of his words by carefully selecting his own people, Abraham, Moses, and then the prophets that came later. God is controlling his own story, but then the climactic ending, wait for it, really cool, is his son who comes to finish the words and finish the story. And that's what that line says that's really all that's going on in that line jew uh, i mean and it is a great ending you know or a great way to end it because jesus it's a surprise ending you know because jesus that jewish kid from the obscure hick town of nazareth you know nobody ever knew of nazareth before jesus Um, and somebody's even quoted saying "Has anything good ever come out of nazareth well turns out that jesus is God the Son? (laughs) So it's a great way to end the story. This, uh, you know, he's the one, Jesus, this Jewish kid from Nazareth, is the one who is finishing the story and controlling the final words of God. That's pretty, pretty cool, if you ask me. So the other cool thing is the idea of our fathers. When I read our fathers I scratch my head and I say well what do you mean our fathers well then I know what's what's being referred to here Abraham Isaac Jacob you know the fathers um, as the Bible refers to them and the prophets sure but I think the cooler part is that here the words our fathers reminds us that they are our fathers I'm not Jewish you're not Jewish most likely maybe you are but but most likely you're not but still Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are our fathers too. The important beginning of the story or, you know, the elements of the storyline. These are our people too. Now, that means that everybody, no matter who is reading this, whether you're Chinese, African, or European, or American, descent, whatever the case might be, you are included in the story, if you want to be. They are your fathers too, if you're in the story, which is so, I don't know, its it's just really good. It's really good to be invited into God's big, giant, epic story. I think one of the most fundamental aspects of our humanity is connecting ourselves to the biggest of all possible stories, and not only the biggest of all possible stories, but the best of all possible stories. As human beings, we have the power of imagined reality. And I don't know anybody that doesn't wish that they were part of a big, important storyline. Every one of us wants to be part of something big and good. And this is making it very clear that we're invited into this big, giant story that's, you know, happened 2,000 years or more before Jesus and continues 2,000 years or more after Jesus. It's our story, and we are invited in let me give you a couple of examples i remember having an absolute you know infatuation with native american indians and the reason is, is because my grandfather i don't know i was wee little when he told me this but my grandfather he told me that he was bald because he he captured my grandmother from the indians and they scalped him but he lived and he captured my grandmother from the indians so that caused me to think to myself I must be from the Indians if my grandmother is from the Indians then that makes me partly from the Indians. I always loved the Indians. I thought they were the coolest, man. And 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 so I even joined as a wee little kid. I joined a group called the Indian Guides and I even have this artifact from my childhood that I keep around everywhere. It's it's that part of that imagination where I imagined me being a part of Native Americans, how cool that would be. Also, my imagination connecting myself up with a big story, you know, that I was making up. Well, is the fact that I was born in Texas. I was born in Texas, absolutely. Now, I was raised in Western Pennsylvania, and most of my family's in Western Pennsylvania, but I was born in Texas, and I always imagined me you know being you know the kid that goes back home to his people of Texas you know to his land of Texas and how all the people of Texas would welcome me back whenever i came back anyhow i'm just saying that human beings need to connect with a big story and that's one of the reasons why i love the bible it is the best and biggest story that you can be connected with and the it's just the it's just the best Anyhow, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. We love to put words into God's mouth. So what this sentence does is it actually controls, it shows us that God has controlled the giving of his words and that you can't just willy-nilly start putting words into God's mouth because long ago in many ways, many at many times in many ways, God was controlling those words through the fathers by the prophets but then the words are also then controlled the final words are controlled by the sun. And so what that means is that you can't trump the sun. First of all, the prophets were the way that God was bringing his words to bear until the climactic ending of the sun. And so if you think that you're a prophet that's going to add on to the story, I gotta tell you, you're just out of place. You can't trump the sun. You can't try to get one over on the sun, bringing that climactic ending to the story. Sorry if you're Trumpophobic. Um, I'm sorry that the word Trump precedes the word Trump. You know, you know what I'm saying. And I didn't mean to do anything like that. But you cannot trump the sun here, which I suppose is kind of, you know, bad news. Um, But the point is that the climactic ending cannot be rerouted with prophets in the future. And I suppose that's bad news for Joseph and Muhammad, you know. And it's also bad news for many Christians who like to pretend like, you know, God is still speaking to them in these many ways that... You know the sentence talks about, which reminds me of a funny story. I was actually in a Bible study one time where there was a couple pastors involved, and this this was an interesting moment. And I don't have time to tell the whole story, but I was talking about this sentence um, that we're talking about now, and talking about it just the way that I'm talking about it with you. And after it was all said, that you know, after I got you know kind of done talking, one of the pastors said, "Well, that's an interesting interpretation you have here." I was kind of taken back by that. I thought what do you mean interpretation? And um, and he went on to say, well, well, that's only one way of looking at that. And I said, well, what do you mean it's only one way of looking at it? It's the way to look at it. Just read it. Simple English, you know, well, simple Greek, you know, in, in its original form. But I said, this is pretty simple stuff. He, says, he said, well, he said, God still speaks in many ways. And I thought, oh, yeah, that's right. Um, Of course, God can speak in any way that he chooses. And yes, God can speak to you (laughs) in an unconventional way. But remember what I said? The normal way that God promises to reveal himself is through the Bible and reading the Bible. That is the normal way for everybody. Of course, God can still do whatever God wants to do but i th- i then learned that he was uh this pastor was from a, a, the charismatic side of christianity you know our crazy cousins and and uh you know they they love to imagine you know getting better words than than are in the bible okay i i say that i want to throw everybody under the bus hey this is a straightforward reading of the text it is you know exactly the way of saying it i don't think it takes much of an imagination to see that it's just very straightforward The words of the Son will be the climactic ending to this story. If you are trying to add words onto the end of the story or make them different, then you are way out of step. That's my story. I'm sticking to it. Anyhow, the point here is is that God the Father loves talking about his Son. Yeah. Yeah. Turns out, like a good coffee shop conversation, we always like talking about our kids, and God the Father does love talking about the Son. And so this is going to set up a conversation about the Son. Who is this Son whom has spoken God's words in the last days? Well, that's what's coming up in the next lines that we cover. Actually, that's going to keep coming up, but for now... Just imagine in this coffee shop conversation, though, that God is a father who loves talking about a son. And God is a functioning family unit because family is God's idea. Family is not our idea. Family is God's idea from the very beginning. Go read Genesis 1 and 2 and you can't miss the point. Family is God's idea. So the big question is, who is this son that God is talking about. Well, God's going to keep telling you who this son is. So, here's here's what I mean. The next line. The next line says, "Whom," and that refers to the son, "whom he appointed heir of all things." The son is the heir of all things. Not some things, not big things, not these things or those things or that things, all things. the picture? This son who is controlling the words in the final bit of the story is the appointed heir of all things. Oh, the humanity. How that connects with us, right? As human beings, don't we imagine that we wish that we had some sort of huge inheritance? Don't we do our genealogy searches Because we're looking for somebody super cool in our genealogy? You know, don't we wish that we were the, you know, somehow forgotten heirs of some outrageous fortune? It's almost like we were designed to be inheritors, because I think we all think about it. Look at the popularity of the lotto, because the lotto clearly to me is, is our way of trying to say, well, I may not have that rich uncle or rich mom and dad that are gonna leave me a fortune, but maybe I can get it through the lotto. The point here is that this son that's finishing up the story of God, he gets it all. He gets everything. Every known thing. And that includes earth and beyond. This son gets everything. So perhaps this son is a little bit more important than anybody that's ever been on the planet that's ever got an inheritance because this one gets it all. Sorry scientists, I know you think it's yours. Uh, but it's not. Jesus gets it all. Sorry, environmentalists, I know that you think it's yours, but it's not. Jesus gets it all. So, Jesus is the son who gets it all. That's the point. That's a pretty big, overwhelming point. And so, who else is he? Well, let's take a listen. Through whom also he created the world okay so god is still talking about the sun and when he's talking about the sun he now says he through the Son, has also created the world so does that make jesus the creator well according to god jesus is the creator wait a minute i thought he was just a dude I thought he was just a good teacher, you know, I thought Jesus was just a dude, a good teacher. Well, he's not just a dude, he's also creator of the world. that puts him in a different category, especially when it comes to the ending of the story. that puts him in a category that well, if you're not that, then you don't deserve to make any other additions to the ending of the story so yep, yep. The conclusion that we're starting to reach here is that God must think Jesus is God. Yes, maybe that's awkward for you. It shouldn't be because it's not awkward for God. Now, at this point, I'm going to take a little commercial break and and admit to something. Um, for those who are snarky and, and uh, playful and their humor and love to, you know, kind of pull out that one thing, you know, that's ridiculous and and think that it somehow knocks over the whole house of cards that the Bible they think is. Um, you know, true, the word Trinity in describing God is not in the Bible. It is true. I'm not going to find the word Trinity in the Bible. It's a made-up word to try to describe what's going on. Now, if you have a Muslim friend and they know you're a Christian, a serious Christian, they will always make fun of you because I have a Muslim friend who will always point out, hey, you know, you guys and your three gods, you polytheists, ah! it's supposed to be pretty funny. And I think that's pretty funny. And uh, you know, hey, I, I get it. Even Christians like Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses uh, and plenty of other people throughout history have found uh, this to be more than what they can bear in their minds. They think of themselves as being the people who keep monotheism, the one true God, real by not being able to imagine that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, for that matter, but that's a different conversation, that all three are of the same equality but they are. That's the way that God in the Bible talks about it. It's the way Jesus talked about it. It's the way the Father talks about it. It's the way the Holy Spirit talks about it as an equality. It's how God sees it. And the other interesting thing is that Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit, they don't change their mind on God being one either. So (laughs) if you don't like the word Trinity, how would you describe that? I'm not troubled by it. Um, once again, I, I find you know maybe the word Trinity isn't as helpful as thinking of God, thinking of God as a functioning family unit, a functional family. The one true God is a functional family, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. And maybe we need to take family a little bit more. Seriously, maybe that's part of the lesson in seeing God. As a functioning family unit, I don't know, uh, but anyhow, God says it. This Jesus also is the creator of the world. Well, there you go. He also says that this Jesus, wait for it, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature. <laughs> Whoa, there's a lot to digest there. If you're trying to make Jesus a lesser being than God. Well, that's going to be a hard one to explain, because Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Well, it seems like you'd have a hard time telling the difference between Jesus and God. It seems like you would have a hard time telling the difference between Jesus, the Son, the Father. And the Holy Spirit. If you had an opportunity to sit down with all three of them, which is kind of the point that Daniel is making, you know, like 700 years before Jesus comes along, Daniel gets a vision. He's one of these guys where, in many ways and at many times, God, you know, spoke through the prophets. Daniel's a prophet, and Daniel has a spectacular vision at at a crucial time when the people of Israel are in captivity. In Babylon so this is meant to be a very encouraging text but it is a text that is hard to wrap your mind around until you get to Jesus like if you didn't have Jesus it'd be hard to wrap your mind around what Daniel sees here let me just read it for you Daniel chapter 7 verse 13 to 14 I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days So one like a son of man is a human, the ancient of days is God, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. So even Daniel, in his futuristic vision of what is to come, sees that there's one like a son of man, kind of looks like a human, but when he goes before the Ancient of Days, everything is given to him. So the opening scene to Hebrews, as God unveils it, is in perfect step with what Daniel saw. One like the Son of Man is, turns out to be Jesus. Yeah, surprise! Yeah, that, kid, that Jewish kid from Nazareth turns out to be the revelation of God. Maybe you never thought about it that way in your conversation with God here though you probably should so it turns out Jesus the man that people actually met when they met Jesus the people who met Jesus knew that he wasn't behaving like a good teacher they knew they knew that he was behaving like God John one of Jesus hand-picked men, you know, for us to to hear from. John tells us in chapter 5, verse 18, he tells us, you know, how people understood Jesus. And believe me, and, what, and John tells us this because he doesn't want us thinking that Jesus is just, was seen by as some good teacher or some, you know, amicable fellow. No, John tells us, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the awkwardness of Jesus acting like God was, is all there when Jesus was actually meeting people that could have met Jesus. Jesus. They knew the awkward thing about Jesus is that he was behaving like he was God. Who do you think you are, young man? God? Pretty sure Jesus would say, you're right there where you should be. Anyhow, God the Father in your conversation with, you know, your coffee with God? Well, he thinks Jesus is God. Jesus talks and acts like he's God Jesus is the nature of God. If you want to know how God behaves, read about Jesus. Read the Gospels. Read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and digest that this is how God behaves on earth. And if this is how God behaves on earth, how much more should we behave like that too? So absolutely, history is chock full of people who completely miss that message, and do behave poorly, but that's on them. That's not on God, because when God came into the world through Jesus, the very nature of God behaved exactly like Jesus behaved. He didn't punch anybody in the nose, turns out. It was the whole point, though, to show you God. The whole point of Jesus on earth, in the flesh, was to show you God. That's what he is, the radiance of the glory of God, and the exact imprint of his nature actually means for us. And then God tells us, and, and, if that wasn't enough to blow your mind, he, meaning Jesus, upholds the sun, upholds the universe by the power of his word. Do you get the picture here? The picture is uh, so, uh, if you're in that coffee conversation with God, you might interrupt at this point and say, so... uh god are you jesus i think god would say you bet now does that seem ridiculous do you really think that you though get to decide like if you were in a conversation with god and he said that that this jesus the son he actually upholds the universe by his power and you said are you saying that he's god this jesus God says, you bet. And if you think that's ridiculous, do you really think you get to decide? No, I don't know. Listen, I'm a man who responds to authority. And uh, Jesus has all the power and authority from God. That's why I'm in. In fact, I love that little scene from the book of Revelation that I read early on when I became a Christian that Jesus actually has a tattoo according to the book of Revelation and it's on the inside of his thigh. And on the inside of his thigh, it reads, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You know who isn't King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Me. Neither are you. And neither is any schmuck on the planet. And we're all schmucks on the planet. Anyhow, the conversation continues. Here it goes. God finishes up by saying, after making purification for sins, keep in mind, he just told you that Jesus has all the power, I mean, a very muscular statement, to uphold the universe. The universe, not earth, the universe. Okay, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What you and I need to hear very clearly is that the most important thing to God is always the most important thing to God. The real power that we need to be concerned about is the power of God and Jesus making purification for sins. You see, it was Jesus making purification for sins That was the true power that put him in the right hand of the majesty on high. The right hand is always the place of power. So the place of God's power is Jesus making purification for sins. Now, let's be honest. As human beings, this whole sin conversation is one that we don't have enough. And when we do have it, it comes out of our mouths all wrong. Here's the way God talks about it. God knows that we have evil. We have trouble owning up to this. We have evils that need to be dealt with. We live among evils that need to be dealt with. We're part of the evils sometimes that need to be dealt with, everybody. That little old lady down the street who never does anything wrong, when you catch up to her, she'll say, I've done plenty wrong. I've got evil. She's got evils too. You see, God is the only one on the planet that is actually taking the conversation of, of evils seriously. We are the most unserious creatures on the planet when it comes to evils. Seriously. Especially when it comes to our evils. But the real God, the one true God, not the one that we make up, but the one true God actually has the solution to our evils, and it is the most important thing. The most important thing from front to back of the Bible is the power of God to purify us from our sins, to take care of our evils. So Jesus' death and resurrection, turns out, is the power of God. And that power of God is very strange to us. But it is something that we can connect with. When God reveals this kind of power, everybody scratches their head and says, man, that's not the kind of power I was thinking about. Oh, i get that we think of you know tanks and airplanes and bombs and muscles and all of that but the kind of power that god puts on display in jesus death and resurrection making purification for our sins is the kind of power and i know you've probably been wondering why are you wearing a shirt that says uncle tom well here's why Because Uncle Tom, if you've ever read the book, and I'm sure you've heard something of the book, and you get the basic nature of the book, but Uncle Tom, in the book, Uncle Tom's Cabin, turns out to be the kind of hero that you can only appreciate if you appreciate the power that Jesus is displaying in his death and resurrection You see, the kind of power displayed by Uncle Tom is the power of non-retaliation. It's the power that Uncle Tom seemed to see in God and allowed him to be the strongest heroic character in the novel Uncle Tom's Cabin. If someone called me an Uncle Tom, I know they would mean something disparaging by it. But I would take it as a badge of honor because the idea of Uncle Tom taps in to the real power on display in Jesus death and resurrection and don't forget Jesus death and resurrection was a hideous thing and his closing words is father forgive them for they know not what they do why because our world is full of evils evils that God takes seriously when it comes to you personally and the evils at large Everyone needs what Jesus has to offer here when it comes to the purification for sins. That seem ridiculous? Well, here's my question. What do you got? I mean, seriously, what do you got? I mean we live in a world that's full of jokers and smokers, comedians, smarty pants of all kinds and varieties. And we live in a day and an age where where people feel so good about themselves for, you know, finding that one little thing that they think collapses the whole house of cards. You know, for instance, I was listening to Billy Burr, who I love as a comedian. I think he's really funny. And I was listening to a podcast and and uh, he's not a very religious guy, I guess. And and he uh, was talking with somebody and and they they uh, just so so easily mocked, you know, Christians and you know, maybe all religions, but Christians in particular for for being Christians, because well, well of course, there's dinosaurs, so that means there is no God. And I thought, <laughs> I'm sorry, I don't know how they're being dinosaurs, automatically. means that there is no God but you know hey you know that's what we say and a lot of people say that and and they, they feel great about themselves and then they also went on to in this conversation they went on to talk about and if that ain't enough you know what about all the bad Christians what about all the hideous things done in the name of Christianity and and of course they're never Jesusers you know if there is such a thing never Jesusers you know um but um you know and, and and their 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 confidence was in reason. We have reason, so we don't need God, you know. And they find it ridiculous that people need God. Now listen, I get it, you know. Jokers, smokers, comedians, smarty pants—the world's chock full of them, and you know we're part of them. I suppose. It also reminds me of Voltaire's little snarky response, you know, when when he concluded that, you know, God is a tyrant whom we should hate, you know, and he created, and Voltaire is the very definition of the age of reason, you know, and Voltaire, you know, goes on this kind of rant that, you know, God, you know, only gives us the right to live so he can punish us, and that, that makes him cruel and vindictive, and and oh, he goes on and on and on and on about how nasty God, is. listen, it's, it's all been said before, and I'm not even put off by it. But one of the things I like about Voltaire is that he's at least honest enough to admit that he doesn't have anything better. In fact, Voltaire says this, Behold, this Christ, powerful and glorious, trampling death under his triumphant feet, emerging victorious from the gates of hell. His example is holy. His morality is divine. He consoles in secret the hearts that he illumines, In the great misfortunes he gives them support and if he bases his doctrine on an illusion it is still a blessing to be deceived with him that's what I like about Voltaire is that he at least doubles back around and admits that he might think that Jesus was deluded working with illusions you know whatever But he does admit that to be in his illusion is a comfort and a joy now I don't think Jesus is an illusion I don't think he was working with illusions I don't think Jesus was deluded and I like Voltaire's honesty that he's at least admitting that he doesn't have anything he may be able to you know in a in a in a joker or smoker way point out what he thinks you know is the ridiculousness of god but at the end of the day he doesn't have anything better than what jesus has and maybe it's best to live in that illusion <laughs> well um i'm with thomas you know i love how honest the bible is and 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 i think that you know thomas is there for all of us sure sure the 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 vision of jesus Is beyond our usual imagination it's beyond our normalness I suppose and Thomas held out Uh, Thomas hearing that Jesus was resurrected he, he you know laid it out there he's like I don't believe it I don't believe it and of course when Thomas met Jesus his words were very simple my Lord my God so I guess I'll finish this Talk by saying, I'm with you, God. I'm with Thomas, my Lord, my God. This Jesus the Son, he is my perfect Lord. He is my perfect God. Don't worry if you've uh, disparaged God like, uh, you know, Billy Burmite or voltaire If you think it's ridiculous or have thought it ridiculous, don't worry. God the Father, He's patient with your jokes and your smokes and your pokes. Jesus certainly demonstrated that he can handle your criticisms. And that's what I love about him, too. And that's what makes him God. Well, anyhow, we got a lot more on this Jesus as God talks in his conversation with us over some coffee. We'll see you next time. I love you.